I'm Lillian Vasquez, and this is Inland Edition. Last week on Inland Edition, we talked about childhood obesity and how COVID lockdowns have impacted our youth physically. Well, May is Mental Health Awareness Month, so we're changing gears to examine mental health among children and adolescents. So today on the program, we'll talk to Amrita Rai, Clinical Director of Community Behavioral Health with Inland Empire Health Plan, also known as IEHP. Please be forewarned, our conversation will be focused on suicide and depression among youth. You're listening to Inland Edition on 91.9 KVCR. I'm Lillian Vasquez. My guest is Amrita Rai. She is Clinical Director of Community Behavioral Health with IEHP Inland Empire Health Plan. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Today's focus is about our youth and mental health. One of the topics that I want to really dive into today is youth and teen suicide. Is suicide more common in boys than in girls, and at what age? What an important topic. We have definitely seen an exponential increase in suicide for both boys and girls, but we tend to see a higher increase in girls overall. You know, right now we're looking at um, our youth anywhere from 10 to around 17, 18. If anyone has a chance to go on the CDC website, there's a really interesting kind of animation. Uh, You can click on the years and you can see from 1999, I believe it is, all the way to 2020. Uh, You can pick the ages. You can see the youth go from the fourth or the fifth suicide rating all the way to 2020 to the second leading cause. It's really astonishing to see how it moves. It's really alarming, actually. The fact that your range is from 10 to 17, I didn't think maybe quite that young. So what does it look like for a 10-year-old and a 17-year-old? I I was thinking like our teens, there would be more pressure or whatever's going on in school or not in school in this case in in some instances. Mm -hmm. What does it look like for a 10-year-old? Before I answer that, we need to sort of kind of level set with what's going on in the developing brain. Prior to 16, really kids aren't able to think abstractly. Think of all the things that have been going on in this world. The brain develops with challenges and there's physiological developments in the brain. And at the same time, quote unquote, normal development, uh, dealing with school, drama that comes from social interaction, sports, learning musical instruments, uh, a lot of, of the social type of stimulation is what goes hand in hand with the physiological development of the brain. So you think about you know, the isolation and the loneliness that has happened in the last several years, it has way more of an impact on the brain, the developing brain of our children than, than we think. So prior to the age of 16, kids are really unable to think in abstract ways. It's mainly more concrete. They're not able to, in essence, make connections between their rational and the emotional parts of their brain. So when I say concrete thinking, it's almost like children are unable to see that there are multiple different options in decision making, and they're not able to also connect repercussions of those behaviors. Now, going back to your question, when you think of the brain of a 10-year-old, even different from a 16-year-old, you think of what these 10-year-olds are experiencing, seeing, feeling, 
sensing in the world around them, their little brains are unable to assimilate that information and understand it. When you put all that severe external stimulation on a 10-year-old brain, you get a 10-year-old who's unable to cope with the regular scenarios in life that they're normally supposed to have. And now they're looking at losing a parent, losing family members, not being able to say goodbye, all those things that a 10-year-old needs to experience to help that brain development. They're experiencing adult life challenges. So your question is, what does that look like? It looks like a 10-year-old who is unable to handle things that are coming at them because they're not supposed to be handling things like that. Okay, so what are some of the issues or reasons that send our young youth into despair? You mentioned it briefly, but I want you to touch a little bit about some of those specific reasons that send our kids into despair. One of the things that keeps coming back over and over again is the word loneliness. You know, looking at the impact that loneliness has, I know I keep going back to normal brain development, what we expect as brain development for our growing children. Children need socialization. There's a lot of various thoughts and debates out there about social media and screen time. I heard an interesting quote, and it was, you know, for such an electronically connected population or age group, we are seeing the highest rates of loneliness, which is really ironic. So you wonder what it's doing to children who normally have this ability to be social that are not being social anymore. You can look on your screen and you can see Susie, the popular girl in school, connecting with people, going out, posting things on Facebook, and yet the child that is unable to make connections easily feels even more disconnected. Then you couple that with the inability to cope effectively because they haven't had those challenges that have challenged their brain development. And then you layer on top of that the inability to abstractly think. You're left with a child who is facing loneliness and only can potentially see one way out. All right, I want to touch on loneliness and social media in just a second. But first, I'd like to reintroduce our guest, Amrita Rai. She's Clinical Director of Community Behavioral Health with IEHP. So you touched a little bit on loneliness and what that triggers. And in today's world with social media, I remember what it was like when I was a kid growing up. And sometimes a little thing could just you know, upset me and my parents would talk to me and I'd go to bed. Mm -hmm. And now it's amplified with social media because it doesn't die that night. It's the next day. It's that night. It's the community and it spreads. And so the pressure seemed to be so much heavier and burdensome with social media. Oh, absolutely. And as I mentioned, there is a debate. Social media has has brought so much at our fingertips. We uh, can learn and know facts at a moment's notice. And social media isn't necessarily all bad. When you think of the subsection of children who, you know, are facing disproportionate stresses in their communities, in their lives, you look at social determinants of health that relate to homelessness and poverty and other things that kind of affect future progression, you take that subsection and then you add loneliness on top of that. 
And you're probably going to get a statistic that goes to the roof like we've seen. You know, we can go back and forth and look at the pros and cons of social media. I absolutely think that is one factor that has kind of increased the inability for children to handle social situations and stresses in their life. Absolutely. But I also think there is a subsection of vulnerable children that's probably growing in size that is affected uh, way more from the, the loneliness that comes with increased screen time and social media. Depression is known to be a major cause. What circumstances do you see or hear about depression? Like what items are triggering that? And maybe this is social media. Maybe it's kind of what you were talking about, loneliness and isolation. But what Mm -hmm. other pressures are there for our young kiddos that um, can cause them to fall into a depression? I've often been asked, what is quote-unquote normal? I know that word has different meanings for different people, but... What is normal behavior Um, in in a teenager and a child growing up? Their body's changing, their brains are developing, they have different hormones shooting through their body. And what is depression and what is behavior that we call uh, maladaptive or, you know, not adapting to the normal stresses in life? And to that, I would have to say, you know your child. You know your loved one here. And if the behavior or the sadness is lasting for longer periods of time and it's starting to affect the everyday things that that child does, then we've sort of crossed the threshold to something that we would call depression, that we would need to ensure that there is um, immediate help for. And it's very difficult to say what causes depression because it can be multifactorial. Right, and I'm hoping you'll share some of those things that might be triggers, because it may Mm -hmm. be one of them, it may be five of them, if you could just share Mm -hmm. some of those things. So parents listening or teachers listening, it Mm -hmm. will trigger with them. One big one is hereditary. So if you have a family member, a mom or dad, who has suffered from depression in the past, know that that child potentially has a propensity to experiencing depression. There are many things you can do about that, and we can get into that a little bit later. The other thing is traumas. Again, going back to children, children are vulnerable. Yes, they are resilient. They are in a very vulnerable state because their brains are soft and malleable and they're developing. So you throw in traumas. And when I say traumas, I'm not talking about, you know, years ago, we used to define traumas with these you know, horrific, you know, accidents or we witnessed something terrible or there's abuse or something like that. But we have since, you know, expanded the definition of trauma. And it's really how one experiences it or experiences an event. So trauma could be anything from um, exposure to violence, having a mom or dad who went to jail or was incarcerated. I recently read a statistic. I can't remember exactly what it was. Um, Over the pandemic so far, we've had an inordinate amount of children lose a primary or a secondary caregiver. That's a trauma. Traumas without acknowledgement and without either a a positive role model of support, somebody to come in and, and increase that resilience and that increase the ability for the child to get through that trauma and experience it in a healthy way, that potentially could lead to a depression. 
What about uh, what quick, about academic uh, pressure? Is that an issue? Is that a thing? I mean, academic pressure has always been there, right? Mm-hmm. Kids go to school, kids manage it. But I really do believe that it's layering on all the other stresses okay. that have made children even more vulnerable to the things they have experienced for decades. Kids started going to school and they started having you know, fights with best friends and, oh, I didn't get picked for the football team or I got picked last. You know, these are sort of the regular, what we consider stereotypical challenges that kids go through. But now you layer on everything else and that increases the vulnerability, reduces the resilience and increases the propensity that somebody could develop a depressive episode. We're talking today about mental health and adolescence. Our guest today is Amrita Rai. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we'll continue our conversation regarding signs to watch for regarding depression and suicide. You're listening to Inland Edition on 91.9 KVCR. I'm Lillian Vasquez. You're listening to Inland Edition on 91.9 KVCR. I'm Lillian Vasquez. If you're just joining us, our guest is Emrita Rai. She is Clinical Director of Community Behavioral Health with IEHP. Now, before the break, we were talking about depression and different things that might trigger it. But I'm wondering now if you can share specifically signs that parents or teachers or educators or whatever adult might be near that adolescent that we can watch for. Yeah, Lillian, thank you so much for asking that question because... I am a huge proponent of empowering people with knowledge. And so let's go into some of these signs. So a lot of times children, and maybe not teenagers, but children express physical complaints. Their tummies ache. They have headaches. They could also not want to go to school. I mean, more than normal. They're having trouble going to sleep, complaining of bad dreams. There's a time that parents or loved ones will start asking questions. Boy, this seems like a pattern. And uh, I have to interject here. I actually visited a school recently, and I was talking to the, the clinical therapist at the school. And I asked, you know, what type of things she sees often in that school when she needs to see the kids. And she mentioned, you know, depression, anxiety, this kind of fearful inability to cope. And so we started talking about what type of things come to the school nurse. And I was I was happy to hear this. And, and she said the school nurses tend to look for patterns of headaches and tummy aches and other kind of physical complaints. And when they identify a pattern, they connect that child with the therapist. I mean, think of years ago, did we ever think of doing that? I don't think so. When I was a kid in school, I don't think people made those connections, but now they are. So physical health complaints are a big one. Um, Poor concentration, changes in appetite, either eating too much, eating too little, sleeping too much, sleeping too little. Of course, big one, increasing substance use. You know, there's more marijuana and vaping with our children as opposed to hard, you know, alcohol or drugs. But, of course, alcohol is something to watch for, too, especially going back to that brain development. The brain is so vulnerable, you introduce substances to it, you could really be going down a bad path because you're connecting your brain that's developing to those substances and pleasure. Sadness, grief, anger, 
irritability, depression does not um, exhibit necessarily the same way in children and adolescents as it exhibits in adults. We've got to be sort of hypervigilant to look for those odd and different signs that are out of the ordinary. Of course, when we get a little bit further along in the spectrum to more severe um, symptoms, we see and feel and hear thoughts about hopelessness. And I want to go to sleep and then not wake up. I don't want to handle this anymore. Comments like that. And of course, then suicidal thoughts and self-harming behavior. Now, how do we not, based on all the information you just put out there, how do we not say, oh, that's just part of being a teen or that's just part of growing up and we don't confuse the two? Because sometimes they are just part Mm -hmm. of being a teen and other times it's really signs that we should really pay attention to. Great question. Some of those things that I mentioned toward the end, hopelessness, suicidal thoughts, those definitely you know, would not be regular teen type thing. So that's usually at a point that there could have been missed opportunity identifying some symptoms prior to that. And one thing, Lillian, I need to mention, so when there are physical complaints like that, the first thing we tell our our families is, have you gone to see your doctor? Because we we first want to make sure we rule out anything medical. We don't want to initially right away go to that it's a mental health issue. Because as you know, there is a, such a huge uh, connection between mind and body, but we want to make sure the body itself is well. Right. So to answer your question, it is sometimes difficult, but I would venture to say that the parents know their child. And one of the ways to really get at the, the source is to start talking with your child now. There's so much stigma around mental health, but there's way less now than there was before. There is you know, a lot of things, you know, apps, and here I go with social media again, apps and things online that children are are reading to know that, you know, there's conversation out there. You can talk about being depressed. You can talk about this. But parents need to model that behavior first. It's a scary conversation. Absolutely. It truly can be. Our guest is Amrita Rai, Clinical Director of Community Behavior Health with IEHP. In our last couple of minutes together, I want to find out what's in place to get help and what does it look like? There is more and more help coming for children. We are kind of behind in that. There's been a lot of help out there for adults. There's a lot of legislature. There's a lot of state and the federal government are infusing the states, California for one, with funds when it comes to prevention and early intervention in or around schools, in the community. You know, it's not just about waiting till the child needs the help. It's about getting it downstream. I'm sure there's plenty of more exciting things to come. I'm blessed to be a part of that through the health plan. But currently, Mental Health America, mhascreening.org, has an amazing website that you can, what they call, take a checkup from the neck up. It's amazing because they have valid brief tests or screenings that people can go on and just answer some questions. And it tells them, hey, looks like you might need to reach out and get some help. So that might be a really great resource for, you know, moms and dads and to even to do with their kids. If you have a question or a, or a concern or I've identified maybe a little bit of change of behavior, 
you have your PCP, your primary care provider. You can go to your primary care provider. You can share some of the information, and that primary care provider can connect you. There is what's called mental health parity. What that means, basically, is mental health is as important as your physical health. You know how you don't have to get a health plan referral to go see your PCP? You don't have to get a health plan referral or a PCP referral to see a behavioral health or a mental health care provider. You can call them directly. We have a a huge amount of IHP members in the IE. They can call IHP directly. They can go on our website and click on find a doctor and put in all their info and go directly to a therapist or a psychiatrist if they think they need that. If there is an emergency happening, 911, don't call your health plan or don't call your PCP, call 911. There is a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, um, 1-800-273-8255. And Lillian, incidentally, July 16, we will have a new three-digit number, the whole nation actually, it's 988. And that number has been designated three-digit number to route you to the suicide hotline. So there's been a lot of research done that the suicide prevention hotline actually works. It's beneficial, but it is so inundated that oftentimes there are wait times. And that's not beneficial, especially when someone needs someone to talk to right at that moment. What does help look like? So help looks like a child getting to see a therapist who they connect with, they're able to to talk with them about what is going on in their life. And the therapist helps them build that resilience, make those connections so that they can cope with what's going on. Help also looks like when you get to a point that your child might need to be evaluated for some medication because sometimes that is a need. And there is a lot of research that says having a psychiatrist who works with your medications and a therapist who does talk therapy those together are more efficacious than each of them individually. And lastly, do we see um, any one population, does, does teen depression hit any specific population more than any other? Well, that's a good question. Um, what we're seeing is that the use of color are disproportionately affected, and children who are dealing with social determinants, so homelessness, poverty, witnessing violence, it is definitely affecting and impacting them more. We've seen a rise in that population quite higher than the others. What about our kids that haven't quite figured out their sexuality? Thank you for mentioning that. Kids who are trans or LGBTQ absolutely have experience the loneliness, disconnection, and therefore a higher rate of uh, suicide and depression. Thank you so much for your time. I hope that people listening gain some information and most importantly, we'll learn that lifeline number of 800-273-8255. After July 16th, the number they'll call will be 988 for immediate assistance. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, Lillian, and thank you for having me. Amrita Rai is Clinical Director of Community Behavioral Health with Inland Empire Health Plan, or IEHP. You can find them online at iehp.org. We'll include a link to the IEHP website as well as hotline numbers and links to additional websites mentioned today when we post today's episode on the Inland Edition program page. 
Join us again next week for Inland Edition, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. and 6.30, right here on KVCR. To hear this episode and past shows, visit our website at kvcrnews.org slash inlandedition. You can also listen to Inland Edition on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, or search for Inland Edition on your favorite streaming service. Inland Edition is a production of KVCR News. Support for this production, including writing and editing, comes from Rick Dulock, Sharina Wad, and David Fleming. And we get technical website and social media support from Tim Steidel, Sean Houlihan, and Natasha Coles. I'm Lillian Vasquez. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.